you to grab your Bible, open it, and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, if you're looking in the Pew Bible, you should find it on page 1244. Ephesians chapter 5. <clears throat> I don't know if you've, if you've noticed this, um, but superheroes are kind of a big deal right now. It's sort of hard to escape them. Every time you drive past a movie theater, there they are staring at you saying, come watch us. Uh, it's, it's, it's not really a new thing. I was thinking this week, um, and, and hear me out when I use this analogy, superheroes are kind of like feral hogs. They, they've been around, but everybody just seems to suddenly be talking about them a whole lot more than they used to. Um, when I was growing up, my friends and I would debate which superhero was the best. And it was a simpler time back then. We didn't have the Avengers. I'm sure they, they were in comic books, but in terms of you know TV and movies, it was basically Batman and Superman. Those were our two uh, choices. One, you could take a stand. I was always a, a Batman guy. Um, but we would we would debate who's better, and we would debate which is the best superpower. You know, some wish they could fly or have superhuman strength. Others want to be invisible. I never trusted those people. But let's imagine, uh, let's imagine we we were to open our Bible this morning, and that we were to find a command in the Bible from God that said this: "Thou shalt fly." Thou shalt fly. Now, for the sake of the illustration, we're going to assume that the command does not mean that you can fly in an airplane or with a jet pack or any other kind of apparatus. No loopholes here. Literally, God tells you to fly like Superman, to just go outside and just, you know, put your fists in the air and take off. What would our response be to such a command if we were to open our Bibles this morning and thou shalt fly? Well, some would say, well, you know, surely God doesn't actually intend for us to fly. That must have just been something He said to people back then. People used to fly a lot back then. Others would argue that, you know, flying, you know, when God said, you shall fly, He really intended that for just kind of a really sort of elite tier of believers. That there are some people out there who are kind of super-duper Christians, and they can fly, but the rest of us, you know, we're, we're never going to actually do that. I'm sure there would probably be TV preachers who would uh, stand up and they would promise, uh, if you have enough faith, if you sow a seed, you know, of faith, meaning if you send me enough money, then you'll be able to fly. The fact of the matter is, God would be telling us to do something impossible. If He were to say, Thou shalt fly, He would be telling us to do something impossible no matter how hard we prayed, no matter how much money we sent to that TV preacher, there, there is, of course, no command in Scripture that says, Thou shalt fly. But there are lots of commands that are equally as impossible to obey. For example, God says, You have to love me supremely with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. If you think that that command is easier than Thou shalt fly, then you haven't really come to terms with your own sinfulness. Oh, by the way, you also have to love your neighbor as yourself. And how do we love ourselves? We don't just have nice thoughts toward ourselves, but we, we wake up every morning and we make sure that we get fed and that we get clean and that we 
you know, have a place to sleep, that we have shelter and all those kind of things. God says you're supposed to love your neighbor to that same degree, that you're supposed to care and seek their well-being as much as your own. Jesus commanded His followers, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. If you think that's an easy command, then we haven't quite reckoned with what Jesus was telling us to do. Though those commands are just as impossible to obey as thou shalt fly. So we have a few choices. We can, we can try to wiggle out from under those commands. We can pretend that they're easier than they really are. We can intend that God must have intended those only for truly elite Christians. They don't really apply to most of us. We could throw up our hands in frustration and say, God must be cruel to tell us to do things that we cannot possibly do. Or... This is the option I hope we're going to go with today. We could humble ourselves before God and say, Okay, God, I, I see how you have told us what to do and how we could never possibly do that. So I'm going to trust you that you are wise and good, that you will give what you require, that you will enable us by your power to be and to do what you've commanded us to be and do. That's where I want us to get this morning, a place of surrender where we acknowledge that we cannot obey God on our own, in our own strength, but we need the strength that He supplies. And so we're going to read together in Ephesians 5, verse 18, just one verse, Paul speaking from God and for God. He says, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Let's pray together. God, I pray with thanksgiving that you would not tell us to do something if it were truly impossible. We know that this is impossible in our own strength. We know that this is impossible on our own, but Lord, because you have commanded us to be filled with your Spirit, then you have guaranteed your willingness to fill us with your Spirit. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us this morning to understand what this means and that it would become something that we pursue with all of our energy earnestly and sincerely that we would pursue the filling of your Spirit. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I want to say at the beginning here that the primary emphasis of the Bible is not on what God requires us to do. A lot of people think of the Bible as just a list of rules and commands. The Bible does have plenty of rules and commands. Be filled with the Spirit is one of them. But the vast majority of the Bible is a story of what God has done for us in Christ and on what He has promised to do in us and through us by His Spirit. So the command to be filled with the Spirit is foundational to many other commands in Scripture because it explains how obedience is possible. Not by our own effort, not by our own strength, not by our own wisdom, but by the enabling presence of God's Spirit in us. To paraphrase Martin Luther, if we trust in our own strength, our striving will be losing. And so we need to seek the strength that the Lord provides through the presence and power of His 
Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. That's the phrase that we are going to take this morning and we are going to turn it every angle like a diamond and just try to get as much truth out of this and grace out of this as we can. And I want us to think of that phrase, be filled with the Spirit, as both a command and a promise. It's something we are commanded to do, be filled with the Spirit. But it's also a promise of what God has promised to do for us and in us by His Spirit. He would not say, be filled with the Spirit, if He did not intend to fill us with His Spirit when we pursue and seek that and ask for it. But what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? This is something that people have been disagreeing about for a long time. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? How will I know if I'm filled with the Spirit? How, how do I get filled with the Spirit? Is it, is it a one-time event or is it something that I'm supposed to do over and over and over again? So those are some questions we're going to try to answer this morning. So I want to just sort of walk through and give us a number of truths about that command and promise. First... Being filled with the Spirit follows being sealed with the Spirit. Being filled with the Spirit follows being sealed with the Spirit. So hold your place here in Ephesians 5 and flip back a few pages to Ephesians 1. Flip back to Ephesians 1 and let's look at Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13. Ephesians 1.13, speaking of Christ, Paul says... In Him, in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. In other words, Paul is speaking to Christians. He's addressing Christians. He's addressing those who have heard the word of truth and have believed in Christ. Those who have heard and believed, Paul says, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Elsewhere in the New Testament, that's referred to as being indwelled by the Spirit or being baptized in the Spirit. So when you hear the command in chapter 5, be filled with the Spirit, it's important to know that God is speaking to people who have already been sealed with the Spirit, who have already been indwelled by the Spirit, who have already been baptized in the Spirit. Those people are the ones to whom this command is given, be filled with the Spirit. The Spirit is an irrevocable gift of God. The Spirit's presence with believers never changes. It does not increase or decrease. It's constant and steady. So what then is the point of saying, be filled with the Spirit? If you've, if you've already been sealed with the Spirit, if you've already been indwelled with the Spirit, baptized in the Spirit, then why does Paul feel the need to say, be filled with the Spirit? That brings us to the second truth. That being filled with the Spirit is a state of surrender to God's controlling influence. Being filled with the Spirit is a state of surrender to God's controlling influence. So here in Ephesians 5.18, notice what Paul contrasts with being filled with the Spirit. He says, and do not get drunk with wine. Sometimes we focus on that half of the verse, and it's there for a reason. It's breathed out by God. But don't just fixate on the negative command of don't get drunk with wine. We also need to think about, well, what's the analogy there? 
What, what is it about getting drunk with wine that is somehow analogous to being filled with the Spirit? It's about control. It's about influence. If a person gets drunk, they come under the controlling influence of alcohol. It alters their personality. They say and do things they would not otherwise say and do that would otherwise be uncharacteristic of them. Their speech changes. Their, their ability to make good decisions is inhibited. When someone is filled with the Spirit, on the other hand, they say and do things that would otherwise be uncharacteristic of them. Their speech changes. Their decision-making changes for the better. They exhibit boldness they would otherwise lack. So being filled with the Spirit then is something we must pursue, but it's not something we can accomplish. Nobody can, can sit there and, and just, just say, okay, I want to be drunk. And just, bam, I'm drunk now. We can't do that. We have to surrender to the controlling influence of alcohol. I'm not suggesting you do that. It's, in fact, it's prohibited there in Scripture. But the point is, being filled with the Spirit is the same thing. I, I can't sit here and say, okay, you know, bada-bing, bada-boom, now I'm filled with the Spirit. It's something that I cannot accomplish, but it is something I must pursue. It's God's work, not mine, something we have to surrender to. That phrase, be filled with the Spirit, it's, it's fascinating because it is an imperative. So going back to... Middle school grammar. What is an imperative? An imperative is a command, right? It's, it's not a suggestion. God is telling us to do something. He's not saying, well, if you have time, um, maybe perhaps one day you might consider being filled with the Spirit. I don't know. That's not the way this is, is, is phrased, is it? It's, it's not uh, maybe, maybe be filled with the Spirit. Think about it. I don't know. It's, it's an authoritative command. Be filled with the Spirit. And yet it's passive. It's an imperative passive, which is really unusual. So the command is not fill yourself with the Spirit. It's be filled with the Spirit. Allow something to be done to you. So being filled with the Spirit is not a state that we can produce. There's no technique to learn. There's no formula to recite, we can't go and sit in a room and uh, see my bow tie, tie my bow tie, who stole my Honda, anything like that. It's something we have to pursue but that we cannot produce. So there's no formula, there's no technique. It's not something I can achieve by saying the right words. It's a state of surrender to God's controlling influence. Number three, being filled with the Spirit is an ongoing pursuit. It is an ongoing pursuit. Most mornings we at, our, at the Simmons house are running around like sprayed cockroaches trying to get everybody dressed and fed and out the door to school and work. And every morning if you were to you know, kind of eavesdrop in on us, you would probably hear either Rebecca or me at one point saying, Nixon, you need to go potty before you leave for school. And I would commend that to any of you, by the way. Always a good idea to use the bathroom before you leave, just in case. Nixon, you need to go potty before you leave for school. And that command functions on two levels. It's immediate. It's, it's, we're saying, okay, Nixon, we're getting ready to leave, so right now I want you to stop what you're doing and go potty. 
but it's also ongoing. We're trying to teach him that habit of, Nixon, every morning before you get in the car to go to school, you need to go potty. That's how this command in verse 18 works. It's a present tense imperative. So in Greek, there are two tenses in which a command can be given. There's aorist and there's present. Aorist means one-time command. This command is present tense, which means it's immediate and it's ongoing. So it's, it's, it's immediate. Right now, be filled with the Spirit. Don't wait until tomorrow. Don't wait until next week. Don't wait until, you know, you're, you're about to die. Right now, today, be filled with the Spirit immediately. But it's also continuous and ongoing. Be continually being filled with the Spirit. That's, that's how the command operates. Not just one time, but be being filled with the Spirit. Now, again, Paul's not saying that you need to be saved over and over. Because remember, he's speaking to people who have been sealed, who have been indwelled irrevocably by the Spirit. If you are in Christ, that, that doesn't change. It's a one-time irreversible event. God has given His Spirit to every believer. So when God commands us, be continually being filled with the Spirit, we, we shouldn't think, well, sometimes I have the Spirit and sometimes I don't. It's sometimes the Spirit has me and sometimes the Spirit don't. Pardon my grammar. If you're in Christ, God is... God's Spirit is dwelling within you. Nothing can change that. But just because the Spirit is dwelling within you does not mean that you're living under His controlling influence. That's what God means when He says, be filled with the Spirit. He means, don't just let the Spirit be a guest in your life. Let Him be the Master. He's in the house, but, but put Him in charge, okay? Say, here are the keys. This is your house. I'm not just, just going to treat you like a guest. You are the Master. It's not about getting more of the Spirit. It's about the Spirit getting more of you. So the Spirit's presence does not rise and fall. It doesn't come and go. But our surrender to His control and influence can and does, which means that we have to continually pursue the filling of the Spirit. Number four, being filled with the Spirit is an individual and a corporate pursuit, meaning it's something we have to do as individuals, but it's something that affects the whole body of Christ. Now, the fact that we have to pursue this individually is, is self-evident. I, I cannot possibly cause anyone else to be filled with the Spirit, nor could I be held responsible if they refuse to be filled with the Spirit. So God's not going to come to me and say, Matt, why isn't Brian filled with the Spirit? Well, that's... I can't do that. Brian has to pursue that. But um, the command to be filled with the Spirit is, is not given to isolated individuals. So if God came to me and said, Matt, why isn't Brian filled with the Spirit? I, I don't know. I'm not Brian. But I, I would still, even though I can't do anything about that, I'm not responsible for that, I should still care about that. I should go to him and say, Brian, the Bible says you need to be filled with the Spirit, brother. <laughs> so be filled with the Spirit. The command is plural. Y'all be filled with the Spirit. In, in, in the South, we have a really good way of second person plural pronouns. Y'all. Y'all be filled with the Spirit. It's, it's not just you as an individual, but y'all, the church. It's, it's a command given not just to some Christians, but to all believers. I, I mentioned earlier that this whole idea of, you know, there being kind of two tiers. You know, there's, there's the super duper Christians and then there's the rest of us. And people like to imagine that there are two tiers of Christians. And I, I used to think that 
people did that because they were just humble. You know, they, they were thinking, well, I'm, I just, I'm not as holy as that person. And the more I just examine my own heart and the more I counsel with people, I'm, I'm increasingly convinced that that's not humility. It's just an attempt to escape responsibility to do what God clearly commands us to do. Because if the Bible uh, commands us to be filled with the Spirit, but if I imagine that's only for super-duper Christians and I'm not in that group, then it means that it, I don't have to do it. It doesn't apply to me. But this command to be filled with the Spirit is addressed to every believer, to the entire church. It's not something only some Christians can achieve or should achieve. This is the norm of the Christian life. So being filled with the Spirit, don't think of it as like kind of this, this elite level that one day if I get good enough at the video game of Christianity, I can get there. This is, this is the beginning of the game. This is you put, the, you put the disc in and it comes on and bam, be filled with the Spirit. It's right there. This is, this is bottom floor in that level. This isn't maybe one day I'll work up to being filled with the Spirit. This is baseline, normal Christian life. It should be true of all believers. And because the church is a body, if, if I'm not filled with the Spirit, then it's going to affect you and vice versa. If there are people within the church who are not being filled with the Spirit, it has a negative impact on the rest of the body. So being filled with the Spirit is an individual pursuit and also a, a corporate pursuit. Fifth, being filled with the Spirit produces noticeable progress in holiness and faith. Now this is common sense, okay? If we're commanded to be filled, to come under the controlling influence of the Holy Spirit, then we should expect that that would produce holiness in our life, right? Now the word progress is important. I didn't say that if you're filled with the Spirit that you should be perfect. You're not going to be this side of heaven. The Spirit's presence does not produce immediate perfection, but it should produce progress. It might be slow progress. It might be progress that sometimes ticks upward and sometimes goes backwards, but it's progress. John Owen said that the growth of trees and plants takes place so slowly that it is not easily seen. Daily we notice little change, but in the course of times we see that a great change has taken place so it is with grace. When Rebecca and I lived in Auburn, we had uh, this lady who lived in a house behind ours. And we like to sit on our back porch. And uh, without being too uh, inappropriate, let's just say, I would have liked if the lady wore more clothes when she sat on her back porch. And uh, we didn't have the money to, to, to put up a fence or anything like that, nor would, because of the terrain, it wouldn't have worked, so we decided to plant some trees. So we planted some Leland Cypress trees out there. And I would sit there and just pray for those trees to grow. And sometimes I'd walk out there and stand up next to the trees and see if they had grown any. And if I did that every day, I'd say, man, these trees aren't growing at all. But a couple years ago, we were in Auburn, and uh, I thought, I want to drive over there and see how those trees are doing. When we planted those trees, they probably came up to about my belly button. And when I walked out there and I stood in front of those trees, they were probably about twice as tall as I was. So when I went there every day to look at the tree, it didn't look like it was doing anything. But when I sort of took my eyes off of it and came back a few years later, suddenly it was twice my size. That's what sanctification is like. 
It's not something that can be measured day by day by day, but over the course of years, we can see, or we should be able to see, some progress in holiness and faith. So when believers are being filled with the Spirit, it, it may not always result in massive transformation overnight. Sometimes it does, but not always. I used to get discouraged when I was younger because I didn't have what I thought was a, a great testimony. I didn't have one of those kind of testimonies where I could say, you know, I was strung out on drugs and alcohol and I went to a hotel and I was about to take my own life and then I found the Gideon Bible and I opened it up to John 3.16 and God changed my life. I didn't have a story like that. But what I do have is a story of, of someone who God got a hold of me when I was a, a pretty young boy and my life is a whole lot different now 25 years later than it would have been if God hadn't got a hold of me then. So it's not always that you can see this progress every day, but it should be the kind of progress you can see over the course of years. And Paul uses a lot of different analogies to describe this progress. He talks about walking by the Spirit, being led by the Spirit, bearing the fruit of the Spirit, keeping in step with the Spirit. All those are synonymous with being filled with the Spirit. It does not mean that we are immediately perfect, but it means that our lives are on a trajectory toward Christ-likeness. And it also means that we are growing in faith, not just holiness, but also faith, increasingly trusting in Christ as our righteousness. I had a, my very first college professor, Western Civ 101. He stood up and he said, the purpose of education is to show you how little you really know. And his point was, you know, when you get to kindergarten, you think I'm this genius. And then suddenly you have to start coloring in the lines and fixing your own plate in the cafeteria. And you think, oh, no, I'm an ignoramus. And then you get that figured out. You start coloring in the lines and, you, you know, you, you write your own name and you think, man, I'm a genius. And then suddenly they start throwing multiplication at you. And you think, oh, man, I'm not as smart as I thought I was. And then you get multiplication now and you can, you know, you can do all your times tables. And then they start throwing division at you and cursive writing and uh, algebra and trigonometry and all this kind of stuff. And, and at every phase of education, you realize there's a whole lot left to go. I still have a whole lot left to learn that I don't know. And there's an analogy there for the Christian life that the, the more we, we grow in sanctification, it's not that we, we, our estimation of ourselves gets higher and higher. It's that, I mean, I realize how much more sinful I was. And by the grace of God, He doesn't show us all of that at, on day one. Because if he, if he did, we would despair and say, oh, there's no way I'm ever going to become more like Christ. But as we're filled with the Spirit, we, we become more and more aware of our own sin. And the more we grasp the depth of our sin, the more we realize the depth of God's mercy toward us in Christ. John Newton, the guy who wrote Amazing Grace, in his older uh, stages of life, uh, his, his mind started to slip. He couldn't remember things. Um, he wasn't as sharp as he once was. And in one, on one of the last days of his life, he had some younger pastors who came to speak to him. And he, he couldn't hardly string a sentence together anymore. I mean, this man who had written hymns and written letters to many people, he couldn't hardly put a sentence together. But he managed to get this one sentence out. He said, I don't know much, but what I knew is I'm a great sinner and I serve a great Savior. That was, that was the story of his life. Is the older I've gotten, the, more, the, the greater I see my sin. And because I see the greatness of my sin, I see the greatness of my Savior. So being filled with the Spirit produces noticeable progress in holiness 
and also in faith. Number six, being filled with the Spirit coincides with a high regard for God's Word. Being filled with the Spirit coincides with a high regard for God's Word. Now, when people think about being filled with the Spirit, sometimes they think about this sort of emotional experience, and sometimes it is that. But it's not always that. That's sort of a neutral thing. But being filled with the Spirit is always accompanied by a high regard for Scripture. A, a Spirit-filled Christian is a Bible-saturated Christian. John 16, 13, Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of truth. So if a person is filled with the Spirit of truth, that person will love the truth of God's Word. They'll want to know it and trust it and obey more of it. They will have a high regard for what the Spirit says in the pages of Scripture. Number seven, being filled with the Spirit leads us to exalt Christ. Being filled with the Spirit leads us to exalt Christ. Jesus said to His followers in John 16, 14, The Spirit will glorify Me. So if a person is filled with the Spirit, that person will not necessarily talk a lot about the Spirit. They'll talk about Christ. They'll exalt Christ. When you read the book of Acts, what that most frequently looks like is believers be bearing witness to who Jesus is and what He has done. Jesus told His followers in Acts 1.8, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be My witnesses. Acts 4.31 says of the early church, They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the Word of God with boldness. So being filled with the Spirit and speaking the Word of God with boldness go hand in hand. If we are filled with the Spirit, we will not only be led toward Christ-likeness, but also Christ-exalting witness. Number eight, and this is the last point, being filled with the Spirit produces unity with other Spirit-filled believers. Being filled with the Spirit produces unity with other Spirit-filled believers. Hold your place here in chapter 5 and glance back at Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 22, Ephesians 2, 22. Speaking of Christ, Paul says, In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The church is made up of different parts, but those parts have been united to Christ. And because they've been united to Christ, they've been united to one another by the Spirit. Now turn over to Ephesians 4, verse 1. Ephesians 4, verse 1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The Spirit of God is a Spirit of unity. There is no such thing as a Spirit-filled, divisive Christian. Being filled with the Spirit produces Christ-exalting unity through diverse gifting. So there's, there's, a, there's a whole lot more we could say, but I want us to turn our attention to how in the world we apply this, because rather than keeping telling you what it means to be filled with the Spirit and what that looks like, we need to try to figure out how are we going to obey this? How are we going to be doers of the Word? So I said that was the last point, but this is a point of application. This is how we pursue being filled with the Spirit being filled with the Spirit is primarily pursued through prayer and God's Word. Being filled with the Spirit is primarily pursued through prayer and God's Word. This is the how part. 
if being filled with the Spirit is a work of God that we cannot achieve but that we must pursue, then that pursuit will primarily be carried out by listening to what the Spirit says in the Bible and by pleading with God through prayer to do what only He can do. Prayer is how we call on God to come through on the promises of His Word. We express our helplessness and our dependence on Him. We ask Him to do what He has said He will do. And God would not command us to be filled with the Spirit if He were unwilling to fill us with His Spirit when we ask Him to do so. In fact, in Luke 11, Jesus says, I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? <clears throat> or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? The gift that the Father wants to give to His children is not material wealth. It's not ease of life. It is the Holy Spirit. That's the gift that the Father longs to give to His children. So the application for us is simple. It's not easy, <clears throat> but it's simple. Listen to the Spirit. And I don't mean that in some mystical way. I don't mean go into your closet and, you know, turn on some music and just see if the Spirit speaks to you. What I mean is, take this book into your closet or wherever you want to and open it up and listen to it. And when you do that, the Spirit will speak to you in the pages of Scripture. So listen to the Spirit. In fact, in Colossians 3, Paul wrote the letter to the Ephesians and the letter to the Colossians at the same time. He was in prison, and he wrote several letters all at the same time. And in some of those letters, he says nearly identical things, which you know makes sense because he kind of had the same thing on his mind. And in Colossians 3, you have this parallel passage. It's, it's almost word-for-word word identical to Ephesians 5, except... Where Paul says in Ephesians 5.18, be filled with the Spirit, you know what he says in Colossians 3? Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Those two things in Paul's mind were synonymous. Be filled with the Spirit, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Why? Because the Bible is the sword of the Spirit. The Bible is how the Spirit speaks to us. So listen to it. And ask God to fill you with His Spirit. Ask. Don't just ask once. Ask again and again and again. And don't ask casually. Don't say, you know, God, it sure would be nice if you'd fill me with your spirit. We need to be like Jacob was the night when he wrestled with the angel and say, I am not letting go until you bless me. If I have to walk away with a limp, so be it. But I'm not letting go until you bless me because you've promised to. 
with humility, we can say to God, you owe me this because you've said you will do it. You've promised that you will do it. So if you are who you say you are, if you are who you claim to be, then fill me with your spirit. Don't ask casually. Don't ask every once in a while. Ask frequently and fervently, persistently and passionately. For Christ's sake, ask. For your own sake, ask. For the sake of your church, for the sake of your family, ask God to fill you with His Spirit. Plead with Him. Fill me with your Spirit, Lord. I surrender to you. Help me to exalt Jesus in all that I say, all that I do. Help me to love your Word. Help me to want to hear it. Help me to want to memorize it. Help me to want to obey it. Help me to grow in holiness. Help me to grow in faith. Help me to forgive that person that I don't want to forgive. Help me to love that person that I don't want to love. Help me to put off that sin that I enjoy, that I've been clinging to. Help me to put on that righteousness that I haven't been wanting to do. Help me to tell others about you with boldness and keep asking Him and keep asking Him and keep surrendering and keep pleading and don't give up until He has done what He's promised to do. In that same passage in Luke 11, Jesus tells this story about if you were to go to somebody's house in the middle of the night and start banging on their door and pleading with them for bread, even if they didn't care for you, they'd give you some bread just so you'd leave them alone. <laughs> and that's what God is like, except He does care for you. But we have to go and we have to bang on the door of heaven and say, God, please give me what I need to obey you, to trust you, to surrender to you. This is what makes our obedience possible. This is what makes it possible for us to do what God's commanded us to do. We're going to sing a hymn of invitation in just a moment. This is our opportunity to respond to the Word of God. And so I want us to take a moment. We're going to sing in just a moment, I Surrender All. It's one of those songs that would be easy just to sort of mouth... All to Jesus I surrender, all to Him I freely give. I surrender all. But let's take this song and turn it into a prayer and, and mean it as much as we are able to mean it. I surrender all. All to Thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender all. Let's pray together. Lord, help us to surrender to You. Help us to seek what You've promised to us. Help us to pursue your enabling power to walk in your ways. And God, help us not to let go until you give us what you have promised to us. Help us to surrender to you. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.